on my script, it tells me that I have a, there's going to be a solo um, before I stand before you. So since Paul didn't sing, I will sing for myself, if that's okay. Children, go where I send thee. How shall I send thee? I'm going to send you one by one, one with a little bitty baby. Born, born. Good morning, Calvary. Born in Bethlehem. <laughs> it is a joy to be here. It is a joy to see you here. It is a joy to see. Would you pause with me just for a moment as we talk to our Father? Our Father, we are here this morning not by accident. You in your sovereignty have design and purpose that we would be where we are this morning, right here at this time. Maybe we have different views as to why we are here. Maybe for some, their purpose for being here has already been met. Yet for others, that might still be future of this moment. But we recognize the fact that we are here is always because of your grace, even in this moment. And I come personally before you, inept, inadequate, but a conduit for you to speak through and to and again for your people. I have nothing to say except what you would have impacted me with. And so if there is going to be anything that will taint, distract from what you wish for your people to hear, Father, I ask even now that you would remove it from my consciousness, that your people will have ears to hear only what you have to say, that they will only see what you want them to see. We ask these things, Father, in the name of your dear Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and all of your children present said, Amen. In our bulletin this morning, as a prompt, we have this God's agenda. Our God has an agenda. His agenda affects every people group, regardless of gender, ethnicity, economics, politics, language, or social standing. We call him Lord and Master. Yet, the magnitude of our apathy to his instructions condemn us. Who? Me? God has an agenda. Do you sometimes notice that, well, don't notice, that sometimes you might drive through a certain area and because of your familiarity with the area or the street, that there could very easily be a part of construction or a building that was taken down and you didn't notice when they took it down 
Have you ever had that experience? Or maybe you still saw something just popped up out of the ground like a phoenix, I suppose, and you wondered, say, well, when did they put that there? And I have driven, drive by, past this way very often, but I didn't notice that. I think if we would ask for a show of hands, most of us would be able to think of an instance where that would have happened to us, where we would have passed through a place and says, wow, I never saw that before. I didn't notice that. I think sometimes we do that with scripture. We become so familiar, we drive past the particular scripture, or we read through it, we have heard it read in our presence, but we haven't paused or paid attention sufficiently to recognize the content of what that particular scripture says. I think the opening words in 1 John chapter 2, the first two verses, speaks eloquently to this view. And just as a reminder and a form of introduction to my brief chat with you this morning, I wish to draw your attention to that, just 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, because I think in the opening verses of this particular reference, I think it's at one and the same time, both very stimulating and at the same time soothing. It supplies for us, I think, an inducement to holiness, and simultaneously it calms the accusing heart. At the same time, it stimulates us to holiness, and at the same time, it calms our accusing heart. He starts off by saying, my little children, I write these things to you that you may not sin. That's stimulating. It's an inducement. Do not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I just want to, even though I believe we have heard those words many times before, I just want to extract just three of them before we move further just so that we can remind ourselves of what I believe is a very potent section of Scripture. My little children, I write these things unto you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, but not ours alone, but also for that of the whole world. The first word I want to draw your attention to is an advocate. Jesus Christ is our advocate. The Greek says it's paraclete. The only other reference where this is used in first in St. John chapter 14, verse 16, where it's reference to the Holy Spirit, 
This paraclete is someone who comes alongside to provide needed help. Jesus is our advocate, our attorney, if you please. He is our intercessor, our counsel, our counselor. He is our comfort. I'm not sure we have paused long enough to recognize what that means. I, uh, do you think that you've ever had the occasion when you were in trouble with God? In other words, have you ever sinned? And I'm talking to the Christians after you have become a Christian. Do you take that for granted? Do you know that you have an attorney in the persons of Jesus Christ, the righteous? Do you also know that you have an accuser, one who will wait for you to slip up and says, oh, and they said, you are a Christian, and you said that, did that, or you didn't do that, or you didn't say that? And so the devil is always pointing the accusing finger at the brethren and the sister in. But do you know that you have an attorney, an an advocate, who is there to provide the necessary help? And he is like no advocate you can experience on earth to begin with. The advocate you have, an attorney here, when you are taken to court, he goes with the presumption that you are innocent until proven guilty. Do you know that you and I can't go before the supreme heavenly tribunal saying that we are innocent? Jesus is our advocate. He starts off with the complete reverse, guilty as charged. And yet he provides the necessary help we need in that moment. Also, the next word in this verse says that he is righteous. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. What is righteous? He is absolutely, eminently just. Jesus is righteous. I like that because it makes him, it gives me some, shed some light on the advocate, on the attorney, on our counselor. He is indeed righteous. He is your Lord, the one you call master. I remind you again that God has an agenda. What is interesting about this agenda is that you and I are on that agenda. Isn't that scary or isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful? If you were going to a meeting and there is an agenda, you would notice if you scan the agenda, I'm hoping, I'm believing that you would like to know whether or not there's an item on it that says your name is next to it. You are on God's agenda. You wouldn't want to sit around a table and then find out as you are just casually going through, there is this item that is really addressed to you and you didn't know. I'm here to remind you this morning that God has a large, big, huge agenda, and you are on that agenda. The question is, 
what am I supposed to do on this agenda? The next word from these verses that I want to draw your attention to is propitiation. Sounds good for those who are poetic. Sounds like there's a lot of ring to it. The Greek again is halosmos, meaning in reference to, there's another place where it's used, also has something to do with the mercy of God. But in this case, and I think if you refer back or you remember in the Old Testament and the practice there, particularly with the Day of Atonement, when the priest would go into the uh, sprinkling the blood on the seat, mercy seat. In a sense, think of it this way, that because we have committed, or the people of, let's think back about the Jewish people, having committed a sin, and then the high priest comes in and sprinkles the mercy seat with the blood of the lamb. In a sense, changing what should have been judgment into mercy. That's what have been our case, where we should have received judgment. We receive mercy. And so propitiation, that is what Jesus Christ has done for us. He became the propitiation for us. Another word is our, for that is pacify or pacification. He is the appeasement. He is the atonement, the extinguisher of our incurred guilt. In other words, when the accuser says that guilty, as a Christian, guilty, they have sinned, they have sinned, they have sinned, Jesus steps up as our advocate and our propitiation and says, case dismissed, because he points to the cross and all of the efficacy and power of what was done on the cross is now accrued to us. Record is expunged. And so again, when Satan points the accusing finger, he says, charge that to my account. That's powerful. He becomes our propitiation. That makes him certainly unique. Unlike any attorney on earth, no lawyer pays the client's fees on earth. Yet, that is exactly what Jesus Christ did for us as our advocate. He took our place. Now, that is all good to know as a believer that he is our advocate, he is righteous, and he is our propitiation. But if you are here this morning and you are not a believer, you do not have those benefits. And so it would be remiss of me if I didn't take this opportunity in light of the truth of what we've just shared this morning to ask you, those of you who have not placed faith in Jesus Christ, that your case is still pending and you do not have an advocate and you will stand before a holy God guilty. You can't, like a lawyer today, if he might take a case, let's say, for example, if you were charged with murder, the lawyer's attempt is to convince the judge that you are innocent. He might use one of two ways. He might say, you are not there, therefore you could not be charged. That would be his cause, his mission, is to explain that away. And if you were guilty, then the lawyer's probably other response would be, well, I, if he's guilty, we say guilty with, guilty with explanation. 
or excuse. So now you're going to stand before, and the explanation, of course, the lawyer would say, well, what kind of explanation? It was, I did kill him, but it was self-defense. Or, if it wasn't that, then the other option is, yes, you're guilty. You couldn't claim self-defense, but you will be charged. My challenge now is so that the judge would be as lenient as he could. Maybe I'll tell him that, look at the person. Look at, they, they're so beautiful. Don't, don't give them the maximum sentence. Maybe look at their age. Look at, they're so young. The life is still before them. Or look at them, they're so old. Don't give them life. They ain't got none left. Uh, or, or, or maybe they'll find something else. Maybe that's the option that the attorney on earth would have. Do you see how ridiculous that would be if we try to take those same argument to God? So you, if you are here this morning and you have not yet placed faith in Jesus Christ, you're in a bad place. Romans 3.23 says that for all have sinned and come short. You have sinned and come short. The good news is this. Romans again, 5, 6 and 7, sorry, 6 and 8, tells us that Christ died for the ungodly. That includes you. And God showed his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died. He didn't wait for us to get it right, get it all together. A deposit has already been made for you. And his death, his blood is sufficient for all. But it will not become efficient until you have placed faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. But here's the good news. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. My fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to remind you this morning that it is indeed a privilege to know that you are God's child. In Hebrews chapter 9, we are told that we have an eternal redemption. That is so good to know. It's an eternal redemption and an eternal inheritance. This says those, once you have been born into the family, you cannot be unborn. Your security, your relationship with God is forever. That takes a lot of stress off me. That's good to know. And in addition to that, what we said earlier, you have when you do, Mr. Mark, when you do sin, you have a righteous advocate, one who is your propitiation. That is wonderful news. I tell you, God has an agenda, and you are on that agenda. Some Christians go to the extreme in their understanding of their personal salvation. It becomes too individualized and not broad enough to include others. The Pharisees, I believe, made that mistake because they thought that salvation was for the Jews alone. And not just as the chosen vehicle of revelation to the world, but as revelation's final destination. You and I should not be the final 
place for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to pass it on. The door is still open. There is still room for others to get into the kingdom of God. You know that uh, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that there's only 140,000 people can go to heaven. As a matter of fact, heaven has already had their 144,000, according to their teaching. That number was filled in 1935 that they mentioned at one of their conventions in 1935. So you will not meet a Jehovah's Witness who will speak to you about going to heaven, because the last one, I think in 1992, there were only eight people left to get in. So you are not in that group. So if they talk to you, they're always talking about your presence on earth. You will inherit the earth, they will tell you. I'm here to remind you that God has an agenda and it is still open for business. But he has chosen to use you and me as a part of that process. We must tell the story. And so if you have not been doing that, I encourage you to do just that. The Pharisees have forgotten this. They had forgotten God's promise that he will bless many nations through Abraham. Unfortunately, we may also adopt the same attitude today. And though we don't say it, we often think of salvation as being for those who are like us. We are selective. Those who might think like us, those who might sound like us, those who might dress like us, whoever the us happens to be. Our horizon isn't broad enough and our tents are not large enough. We need to remember, though, that Jesus told his disciples to go to the ends of the earth in Acts chapter 1. And when he said, go to the ends of the earth, I really believe he meant the ends of the earth, meaning across the fence, across the road, across the desk, across the aisles, around the corner, into the next neighborhood. God has an agenda for doing that. And on that agenda, he has plotted in, inserted you and me to be a part of that process. Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 14, 15 through 24, gives us, I think, the picture of what God meant and his intent to have many of us who believe in our mind that it is true and it is something we should do but not yet applied it to our hearts. God tells in this parable that he searches the hedges of the highways for those who will come to his banquet. And if you remember the story, yes, he had almost of a preferred list that he sent out and invited persons to come to the banquet. And they all came back because they had excuse of one kind or another. One of certainly just bought a piece of property. So I don't have time for God now, so can't come to the party. Another one says, I've just gotten married. Now, that's a good reason not to come to a party, unless you take your married person to the party with you. But that person also declined to come. As we read the parable, we are told that as the time got nearer, the servants came back and told them that they're not here. And so the master gave them instructions. Well, go out 
into the streets, go downtown, Bay Street, they can always find people there, um, and invite them. And it did not discriminate, bring the poor, the lame, the crippled, bring them, because the party will go on. You and I are a part of that group, the servants to go and invite. Today we are people, you, you know this RSVP, then you have invited people, RSVP, Respondes s'il vous plaît, is French, meaning please, that's the RSVP. When you are asked to go, but some, that is even the problem to begin with, why is it that the servants don't go? At in your party, God is sending you and I to go and we won't go. Isn't that tragic? How extensive is your salvation? Do you find it satisfying enough just to have it? Or do you burn with a desire to share it? And see that it is spread both next door and around the world. You have to think almost like an arsonist. They marvel at fires. They're always scratching match, looking for some flame. Are you always, because you have this good news, are you so excited about it? Well, that's another story. Maybe that's the problem. Are you excited about your salvation? No. Thank you. Maybe that's where we need to begin. Do you recognize what it is you have? And do you recognize it is intended not for you to keep, but to pass on? Maybe that's the root cause or significant cause of the problem, why we really don't share. You're not burning. It's comfortable. It's yours. You're safe. You have a guaranteed spot. You have a relationship with God. Even though you're not obeying him in this regard, and so you're content. Besides, you're claustrophobic. You don't like to be around a lot of people. And if the more people you tell, the possibility of them becoming a Christian and journey, heaven is going to be crowded. And I don't have a second option. At least I don't like the second option. So maybe if I don't tell as many people, maybe it won't be so crowded. I'll have room to maneuver. Duh. My brothers and sisters, the gospel tells us that God is like a woman who is searching for a lost coin or a shepherd going to great lines to restore a wayward sheep. All that means to this God is finding people with open hearts and hearing ears. I believe that true worship will always, always embrace God's global vision or mission. But what is mission to begin with? I'm here to tell you again, remind you that God has an agenda. And you are part of that agenda, that mission. And simply stated, mission would be, is a task or job that one has been given to do. A few weeks ago here in the Bahamas, a new vessel, the Arthur D. Hanna, was added to the Royal Bahamas Defense Force fleet and commissioned to active military duty. That boat was not just bought to be, I guess, moored uh, in the harbor for people to come and do sightseeing tours of the boat. It was acquired because it had a mission to accomplish to secure the borders 
from the sea of this sovereign place we call the Bahamas. I believe that every child of God has also been charged, activated, commissioned to military duty of sharing the good news about the one we call our advocate, the one we call the righteous one, our propitiation, Savior, and Lord. There is no place on the planet that is beyond this great commission. You know the story in Matthew chapter 28. And just for background, because I see in reading this um, over again, that the commission that was given to the disciples, if you look a little further just before that, you see some other commissions. Do you remember in chapter 27, Jesus has, has been killed, crucified, buried, and uh, you had Mary and Mary, M&M. They were watching the grave, watch where they buried him. And then the next day, by the way, while they watched where they buried, you remember the story that some persons asked, these Pharisees, the high priests, asked, and Pilate says, look, just in case, the disciples, I heard, see, they, they were smart enough, they knew what was going on, that I heard him say one time ago that he's going to rise after three days. So can we get some guards and place them there so that they can watch to make sure, you know, that they don't come and steal the body? So I need some guard to protect the tomb. And doing so, these guards were commissioned to stand guard. That's the first commission. Well, we know how the story ended. But just before that, you know, while they're on duty, and we know how that story went, these two Marys, the next day, they went, and they were watching, and while they were watching, and this is, of course, let me back up one spot. These Pharisees who went to the high priest went really on the Sabbath. I thought they should have better things to do. But no, they again trying to say, look, the reason why they want to make sure that a God was there because these disciples may come and steal. And then what will happen is that this fraud, the second will be worse than the first one because they said Jesus was already a fraud to begin with, you know, talking about he is the Messiah. But now if they come and after three days and you find out that his body isn't there, you can imagine the difficulty we are going to have to explain because of their TT body. So we need the God to be there. Permission granted. But now they are commissioned, these gods, to stand God. You know the story. Now these two ladies, on D-Day, Resurrection Day, an angel came as the ladies came, but of course, stone gone, no one's there. The angel says, go into Galilee and tell his disciples that he's coming to meet them and where to meet them on this particular mountain. So again, these ladies were sent by the angel. As they were going, they met Jesus. So they have a supercharged commission because Jesus told them the same thing, to go and tell my disciples to meet me over in Galilee. So they commissioned. Did they do what they were told? Well, let me back up. Did the soldiers did what they were told? Yes, they went and stood God. Did the two ladies, Mary and Mary, did they do what they were told by the angel? Yes, they were going. To stop, they met Jesus. When they met him, they fell down and worshipped him. And then he told them, yeah, yeah, go and tell my disciples. So here's a 
boosted thermal, thermal, turbo, turbo boosted commission. They went, did exactly as they were told. But here's what, while they were going, now this is on D-Day of the resurrection. While they were going, they also saw those soldiers who were watching, they were bypassed them with gas, and then they were telling another news, because here's what happened in between. They were going and said, Jesus, he ain't there. Well, how could you explain that to your boss and say, what happened? We know the story. The boss says, well, look, we can't let that get on the street. Because if they found out that his body is not, if he's really risen, that's going to add too much credibility to what he said before he died. So I tell you what, if I give you some money, plenty of money, would, would you tell another story? I want to commission you to tell another story and simply say that the disciples, those fishermen primarily, they stole his body. Would you do that? They say, I bet you, boy. Yeah. So they bought that, right? So they bought the lie. Now, obviously, you know, it's incredibly, if you understood what the Roman soldiers were. Do you remember, the, as an example, remember when Paul and Silas were in jail? And uh, the earthquake, when Paul was getting that escort out, and the soldier who was on duty thought that they had escaped because he understood the penalty. You were on duty and you let one of the guards escape. The penalty would be that your life would be forfeited instead. Well... These soldiers knew that, hey, if that word got out, so, but of course, the Pharisee says, I get you back. I get you back. I, if your boss asks questions, we cover it for you. But we need to pay you. And they gave them a large sum of money to go and perpetuate this new message. And the message was this. Tell the Jews who you run into and all the people that the disciples came and stole Jesus' body. Would you do that for plenty of money? Okay. And they did. They followed it exactly. Do you know to this day, there are still people who believe, there are still Jews and others today who believe that Jesus did not come from the dead, that Jesus was not resurrected. Those soldiers did a good job. They were told to go and spread that false message, even though we understood. You know, if we want to say, can I ask you a question, please, since you said that the disciples stole the body while you were asleep. Sleep? Soldiers ain't supposed to be sleeping. Now, I know that's a problem. I went to a certain hospital in the Bahamas, uh, um, other than doctors in New Providence, you know, um, recently, and there were uh, nurses stationed there. I shared it earlier in some regard to my class this morning. They might as well have been asleep because there were four nurses at the nurse's desk uh, chatting, and I'm some distance away from where they were, and they were not paying any attention to this row of patients who were here, down on both corridors. And uh, I, I looked, I made a comment to the patient who I was visiting, and says, do they come by and check? You know, by the way, I, I, I did a recording, I don't know if that's legal, you know. <clears throat> But um, it's interesting, you know, I could have stolen a whole body out of there. They wouldn't have seen, because even though because of my height, I could see them and their head. 
I believe that if I was a little short of Brother Jerry, I could have walked past that desk with anything and anyone, and they would not have known the difference because they never got up. They were not vigilant. But these soldiers here, they, they tell a lie that the disciples stole the body while they were asleep. Now, please pray tell me. I understand this. How have you sleep? How do you know who stole the body? I was trying to figure that out. And yet they told people that, and people believe that. You know, while I was sleeping, Brother Jerry, they break in my house, and I can tell you what they look like. You know, gee, but people believe that. It's amazing. Again, I remind you that every believer is a part of God's agenda. Let me just read it in your hearing. Read the following. Here's what happened. Matthew 28, 11 and following. While they were going, that's the two ladies, Mary, Mary. While they were going, notice that they were going, busy about the task of the commission. Behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a significant sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell the people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. That's amazing. These persons were with Jesus for at least three years. And it's just been now about three days. Some worship, some doubt it. I guess if I think of this audience, some came here today, worship, some came, I for that. I doubt it. That's a possibility. But this is amazing. These are the people who were with him intimately for at least three years. And notice there's 11. So don't blame Judas. He ain't here no more. All right? Some doubt it. And Jesus came in verse 18 and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Here's the commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Our God has an agenda. No class, no caste is beneath his grace. He is relentless in his offer of his salvation. And so must we. We forget that our purpose in this world after we have accepted Jesus Christ as Savior is to make him known. It doesn't just stop with us being the last person to enter the kingdom. This, I believe, is essential and secondarily only to our grateful worship of who God is. It doesn't mean that we become full-time evangelists, no, though we have a responsibility to evangelize. It doesn't mean that we must evangelize by means of maybe a formal public platform, 
by proclamation, though we have the responsibility to use words or sign language. It does mean, however, that we all are given the mandate to glorify the one we call the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords by somehow, some way, making our lives point to him. And the purpose of all this pointing is simply to make disciples as we go, as we live day by day. And you can't make disciples unless you open your mouth, teaching him all that he has told us about. You don't need to tell somebody. How can we do this? In all of our weaknesses, because we come up with excuses, but all of our weaknesses, we let him be seen, and let him be seen as our strength. In all of our trials, we let him be seen as our refuge. And in our victories, we will let him be seen as the victor. In our humility, we will let him be seen as the Lord. And so in every circumstance we find ourselves in, no matter how glorious or how painful, there is a way to point to him. It is indeed our ultimate purpose. In fact, it is the ultimate purpose of all creation because one day all knees will bow and all tongues will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so I tell you again that God has an agenda. On that agenda, your name is there. My brothers and my sisters, children of God, go ye therefore into all the world with the good news of the gospel, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on someone that they have not believed if in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching or telling them? And how can they preach unless they are sent, as it is written? Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Question. Do you have beautiful feet or ugly feet? Have you been sharing the good news? Go ye therefore into all the world, making disciples, teaching them all that I have told you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And while you're doing that, know this, that all authority has been given to him. And know this, that he will be with you always, even to the end of the world. Pray with me. Our Father, thank you for your grace. We've not always been obedient. We confess that, even now. We heard you clearly when you say that we must go. Lord, give us willing feet obedient heart. Give us available person an opportunity so that we might indeed tell the world of just how amazing you are. Tell them about this one we call Lord and Master so that they can also have an advocate 
Jesus Christ the righteous, the one who is our propitiation, the one who is Savior. We ask this now, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, for your honor and absolute glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.